Uh, so it is, it is once again my great joy uh, and honor to be sharing again on my uh, journey into covenant theology. This morning I will be concluding this short series, and so I hope it's been of help to you. And um, this morning we come to the covenant of grace. And uh, of the three foundational covenants within covenant theology, uh, this covenant specifically uh, is the one that I spent the most time preparing for. And the reason being is because this covenant is, without question, the least debated, the least talked about between Baptists and Presbyterians. I am, of course, joking. But (laughs) there are... While there are objections between Baptists and Presbyterians in understanding the nature and operation within the church, um, I want to focus this morning on some of the areas where we do agree. And I I will be addressing some areas where we do disagree in the covenant theology understanding. Um, But I do want to focus on some of the areas where both Baptist and Presbyterian brothers and sisters do stand arm in arm with one another. And together with one choice, we can joyfully declare of this glorious covenant of grace. And so before we begin in examining it, uh, I would like to very quickly summarize what we have already discussed over the past several lessons. When speaking on the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption, and the covenant of works, uh, all three of these must be understood. When we come to the covenant of grace, the first two must be understood. And so the first covenant that we examined was the covenant of redemption. We saw that this eternal covenant between the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is about the redemption of a people chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. In this covenant, it is the Father who will send the Son, the Son who who agrees to accomplish the work given to Him by the Father, and the Spirit who agrees to apply and seal the finished work of Christ to those chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. This covenant is the foundation upon all other covenants rest. The reason being because this covenant is to quote Herman Bovink, without any human offering him advice or giving him a gift that he might be repaid. It is the triune God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, who together conceive, determine, carry out, and complete the entire work of salvation. So that's just a brief summary of the covenant of redemption. The second covenant that we examined this last month was the covenant of works. This is the first covenant that God entered into with man. And we saw that in the garden, Adam's natural or original state before the fall carried with it no promise of eternal life. Both Gerhardus Voss and Lane Tipton, who we read, stressed the importance of understanding Adam's natural obedience and Adam's covenantal obedience. We read a quote from Lane Tipton where he says, Adam by nature was a claimless creature of the dust, so that after he had done all that he could, and rendered his heart to God in full, free, and sincere obedience, he would only have done what was required of him. If Adam is to have life, it must come by way of creation. If that life is to be advanced, it must come by way of covenant. We saw in the Westminster Confession language of using God graciously condescending to Adam in covenant. And this covenant that God entered into with Adam was not only gracious, but it was an act of love by the Creator, for the claimless creature made in His image. God holds forth to Adam the promise of advancement into the state of eternal communion and fellowship with Him based upon whether Adam would live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
We saw, of course, that Adam chose to violate the terms of this covenant and try and live by something other than every word that comes from the mouth of God. And by his disobedience, plunged all of humanity into the state of unrighteousness. But where the first Adam failed, we rejoice in knowing that the second and true and better Adam did not. And this is where properly understanding these two covenants, redemption and works, leads us this morning into examining the covenant of grace. When speaking on any of these foundational covenants, the other two must be in view. You cannot speak of the covenant of redemption without the covenant of grace. You cannot speak of the covenant of works without the covenant of redemption, and you cannot speak on the covenant of grace without the covenant of works. And so let us begin by properly defining the covenant of grace. And so you have there in your outline a couple of definitions. In chapter 7, section 3 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, with regard to the covenant of grace, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that covenant being the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. The Westminster divines rightly have the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works in view when speaking on the covenant of grace. The covenant of works made with man in his unfallen, upright, righteous state. Once this covenant was violated and the fall occurred, man's only hope was to be redeemed by grace alone. This is why the covenant of redemption must be the foundation upon which all the other covenants rest, because the fall is known in the covenant of redemption, and this paves the way for the covenant of grace. Though the covenant of grace appears in history after the covenant of works, the two cannot be separated. Uh, The covenant of grace does not annul the covenant of works. And R.C. Sproul, in his book, What is Reformed Theology?, he explains this by saying, in one important sense, the covenant of works remains intact. God still exercises his just judgment on lawbreakers. The second covenant is in addition to the first. It does not annul the first covenant. We are all under the sanctions of the covenant of works, and we are all in desperate need of a covenant of grace. Also important is to remember that the second covenant, notwithstanding, the way of salvation is still tied to the first covenant. The covenant of grace, far from destroying the original covenant, actually makes it possible for the covenant of works to be fulfilled. This is achieved by the second Adam, Christ himself, who by his perfect and personal obedience, flip my paper, fulfills the requirement of the covenant of works. And so when, when I read this portion from Sproul, I, I came to the realization that the covenant of works is not a lesser covenant. The, the provision of eternal life is not on a lower term than the covenant of works. The terms never change. They remain the same. And those terms being perfect obedience to the will of God. This is why understanding Romans 5 as Christ as the true and better Adam and 1 Corinthians 15 in Christ being a life-giving spirit 
in, in light of Christ as the covenantal head and representative for all those chosen in him is of extreme importance. Eternal life is still received by perfect obedience to the will of God. Only now, under the covenant of grace, it is not by the, the obedience of the first Adam or by ourselves, but by the true and better Adam. This realization and clarification in my own journey mainly came from R.C. Sproul, but it also came from the writings of Johannes Voss, who is the son of Gerhardus Voss. In his book, Covenant of Grace, which I have a copy if anybody would be really willing to read it, um, Johannes Voss does a wonderful job in going through a catechism question and answer style in how to properly understand the purpose of this covenant. Voss writes there in your outline, uh, what is the objective of the covenant of grace? The objective is the eternal redemption of the elect of God. Thus, the objective is eternal life, just as in the case of the covenant of works. The difference consists, A, in man's own condition, man has become a sinner and needs divine redemption from sin, and B, in the method by which eternal life is to be obtained, i.e., by Jesus Christ, the divinely provided substitute, not by Adam, nor yet by the sinner's own personal obedience in God. So we can see how this covenant is connected to the covenant of works. But one question that I had in my own journey was, how is this covenant connected to the covenant of redemption? So Voss, again, very helpful. He says, when was the covenant of grace made? It was made in eternity before the creation of the world, but it was not revealed to mankind until after Adam had broken the covenant of works. This covenant of grace was made in the eternal counts, or in the councils of eternal eternity, but was put into operation in human history after Adam's fall. Thus, the covenant of grace has two phases: an eternal phase and a historical phase. The plan was laid in eternity, but the execution of the plan was carried out in time. And so, now that we've looked at a few different definitions. We've laid a foundational definition of the covenant of grace and how it relates to these other covenants. I want to look at the historical origin and development within the church. And so while the Westminster Confession of Faith uses the title covenant of grace, this is just one example of the many different sources during the 17th century that use the title. Uh, a few that I've read in my own journey would be Wilhelmus of Brockle, in 1690 uses it in his uh, volume of theology Francis Turretin in 1679 and Richard Allain in 1665 and we'll come back to him and while these men used the title the covenant of grace there were many others that spoke this doctrine while the title was absent interestingly though during this time of development of understanding covenant theology um, there weren't just covenant theologians who were seeing the covenant between the Father, the Son, and covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We examined in the lesson on the covenant of redemption that even Jacob Arminius in 1603 makes explicit reference to the eternal covenant between the persons of the Godhead. Arminius was in no way reformed, not covenantal, but he wholeheartedly embraced the understanding of covenant between the Father, the Son, and to accomplish the redemption of all that believe on him. 
And as I've said in previous lessons, the title may at times be absent in history, but the doctrine is not. And so let's take a closer look at at some of these examples of both explicit uses of the term covenant of grace and others who spoke of the doctrine while not using the title. And as I said, one theologian that I was encouraged to read was the great Puritan preacher Richard Allain. In his wonderful book, Heaven Opened, The Riches of God's Covenant, which was published in 1665, Allain, I believe, accomplishes the amazing task of causing the reader to see and feel the joy that every believer should experience in knowing this glorious covenant of God. Alain says with regard to Christ and the covenant of grace, for us he obeyed, suffered, lived, died, rose, ascended, and is set down in glory at the right hand of God. He obeyed as our head, died as our head, rose, ascended, and reigns as our head. And he has, in our name, taken taken possession of that inheritance which he purchased for us. This is that Jesus who is given to us. And thus is he granted and made over to all his saints in this covenant of God. More than a hundred years before Richard Allain, Zacharias Ursinus, one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, in 1561, in his larger catechism, speaks about the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We read in the previous lesson on the covenant of works in question answer 10, but later in his catechism, Ursinus expounds in greater detail on the distinction between the law and the gospel. And so in question and answer 36, Ursinus writes, what is the difference between the law and the gospel? Answer, the law contains the covenant of nature, or the covenant of works, established by God with man in creation. That means it is known by man from nature. It requires perfect obedience of us to God, and it promises eternal life to those who keep it, but threatens eternal punishment to those who do not. The gospel, however, contains the covenant of grace. That means, although it exists, it is not known at all from nature. It shows us Christ's fulfillment of that righteousness which the law requires, and its restoration in us through Christ's Spirit, and it promises eternal life freely on account of Christ to those who believe in Him. And so, much like Martin Luther, when he speaks about the distinction between the law and in the gospel, Ursinus very clearly draws the distinction as well between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and what God requires of man after establishing the new covenant. And so, in the same year that Ursinus published his larger catechism, there were also many other confessions of faith being published within the church. One of the greatest, one of my favorites, Uh, Confessions published in 1561 was the Belgic Confession. Uh, This doctrine, or this confession for me, just has a warmth to it, kind of along the same lines as the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, And it's beautiful phrasing of these wonderful doctrines. And this example that we're going to read here would be uh, an absence of title, but not of doctrine. In, In Article 17, titled The Recovery of Fallen Man, the confession says this. And notice that you cannot deny that this is being talked about. Even though it doesn't use the word covenant or grace, the doctrine is there. 
The Belgian Confession says, We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. The Belgic Confession has a a beautiful way of drawing the reader into the Garden of Eden, where fallen man was trembling, trembling all over and fleeing from the Creator who had entered into covenant with him. And God comforts this claimless creature who did not deserve mercy or grace and promises to him that he will be redeemed by grace alone. Two years after the Belgic Confession was published in 1561, the Heidelberg Catechism was published in 1563, and it also declares of this glorious doctrine of the covenant. In Lord's Day 5, question and answer 12, Heidelberg Catechism says, According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. When speaking on grace, as we've examined these different writers and these different confessions, it would be foolish for me not to include one of the theologians that I first talked about in my first lesson here, and that would be Augustine. When reading different theologians from the Reformation, you cannot help but see the enormous impact that this 4th and 5th century Bishop of Hippo had and still has on our understanding of the doctrine of God's grace. Some have presented that Augustine does not speak on the covenant of grace. They say that it is only through an artificial reading of covenant theology back into his writings that it is seen. But in my own journey, when I first began to read the writings of this man, whose greatest joy was in the grace of God, I did not see covenant theology being forced into his writings, but rather it was an outpouring of sovereign joy in the doctrine of God's grace. And so when when asked why he found such joy in the doctrine of God's grace, Augustine responded, because first and foremost, no subject gives me greater pleasure. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace, by which we are healed? For us lazy men than grace, grace by which we are stirred up. And for us men longing to act than grace by which we are helped. Augustine saw that God's promise in Genesis 3.15 to send a Redeemer was a gracious covenantal act of love toward man in his fallen state. Augustine says in letter 176, there was no reason for the coming of Christ the Lord except to save sinners. Take away disease, take away wounds, and there is no reason for medicine. If the great physician came from heaven, a great sick man was lying ill through the whole world. And that sick man is the human race. No one is healed without the grace of Christ. We owe therefore to him that we are, that we are alive, that we understand, that we are men, that we live well, that we understand right. We owe to him. 
Nothing is ours except the sin that we have. For what have we that we did not receive? And so just over these few examples from the joy-filled writings of Richard Elaine, Zacharias Ursinus, and Augustine, to the doctrinal warmth and comfort of the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, the recognition of the doctrine of the covenant of grace has flowed down through church history. As it was with the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works, those who have embraced this doctrine did so for one foundational reason, and that being that they believed that Scripture taught it. The language of Scripture pointed to it, and the teaching of individual passages proved it to be true. And so, let us examine Scripture then and see this covenant that is spoken about. And so, we're going to start with Genesis 3 and Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. And I'll have you turn there in a little bit. As we've seen uh, in these... I keep flipping my pages the wrong way. <laughs> As we've seen in these different sources... Uh, specifically Ursinus in his larger catechism where he declares that this covenant promises eternal life freely on account of Christ to those who believe in him. Faith is a requirement in the covenant of grace. Faith is the sole condition of the covenant of grace. And even this condition of faith, as we are well aware of, is a gift from God to the elect on account of the work of Christ alone. In Ephesians 2, a beloved passage within the Reformed community, it contains one of my favorite two-word phrases, but God. This phrase is the beginning of one of the most well-known passages on the doctrine of God's mercy, love, and specifically, His grace. Ephesians 2, 4-10 was foundational in my journey into Reformed covenantal theology. But... I learned that the chapter doesn't end at verse 10. There's more to it. And I have truly come to treasure verses 11 through 16, specifically, in in seeing the connection to the first gospel, or the proto-evangelion, if you want to use the Latin, uh, the first gospel given in the book of Genesis, uh, where God promises to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And while Paul is primarily speaking here in this passage about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentiles in Christ, I believe we should also see the reconciliation that fallen man has to God through Christ in the covenant of grace. And this passage was incredibly key in my journey out of dispensationalism as well, to see that there is one people of God. And so if you would please turn with me to Genesis 3 and let us examine this real quickly. Genesis 3, we'll read verses 14 and 15. And uh, as, as we're turning there, I once heard a pastor when asked, well, if you could pick one chapter from Scripture that you could read for the rest of your life, or you could only have for the rest of your life, what would it be? And he actually answered with Genesis 3. And his reason being was because he believed that it contains all of Scripture in a nutshell. The redemptive act. You see the temptation of man, the fall, God's mercy in seeking out fallen man, the curse upon the serpent, the first gospel, the first historical act of atonement for signifying the promised Redeemer, and the tree of life that is redeemed, that the Redeemer would gain 
access to upon his perfect obedience to the terms of the covenant. And so let us begin in verse 14, after the fall, in man seeking out, in God seeking out man and promising unto him the benefits of this covenant. And so Genesis 3.14, we'll start there. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice the word enmity here. Bookmark that and go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, and we'll read verses 11 through 16. God will put enmity between the serpent seed and the seed of the woman. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Remember enmity. Therefore, Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Through the cross of Christ, the enmity between Jew and Gentile believers has been put to death. Believers are, as verse 19 says, no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But even greater than the enmity between Jew and Gentile believers being put to death is the enmity between fallen man and his creator being put to death through the mediator of the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 2, 5, and 8 declare, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so let us move now to Genesis 12 through 17. As we've seen By God putting enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God promises to form a group of people called out from the world and set apart to himself. Genesis 3.15 is seen as the informal inauguration of the covenant of grace. Upon this promise in the garden begins the historical unfolding of God's plan of redemption for his covenant people. The following chapters of Genesis show God's faithfulness to his covenant promise in putting enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We see the birth of Seth in Genesis 4, 
Adam's descendants leading to Noah in Genesis 5. The protection of Noah's descendants in the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. Noah's descendants leading to Shem, Genesis 10. And Shem's descendants leading to Abraham in Genesis 11. The first 11 chapters of Genesis um, reminds me of a painter who is doing very quick, broad brush strokes to create a foundation. But when we get to Genesis 12, it's almost like it is like this painter slows down and now gets a smaller brush and starts to go over these finer details and in, in deeper uh, colors. With God's calling out of Abraham and setting him apart from the world, the implementation of the covenant of grace took an enormous step forward toward a separated covenant nation. In Genesis 12, 7, we see that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In Genesis 15, 2-4, we see Abram asking the Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless? You have given me no offspring. And in verses 5 and 6, God brings Abram outside. Love these two verses. Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. We then see the suzerain vassal ceremony in verses 7 through 21. Uh, and in my first lesson in this series, kind of the introduction lesson, uh, I, I talked about the importance and significance historically of the suzerain vassal covenant or treaty. Uh, what it means to cut the covenant was significant and how the, the division of animals symbolized a pledge to the death by those entering into this covenant. But one of the things that I pointed out, which was eye-opening for me, is that when it came time for these two parties to walk this path of blood after the animals have been divided and the blood is flowing down to the middle of this valley, Abram isn't there. He's asleep. Dread and great darkness is upon him. And he's lying as though dead with these animals that have been divided. Abram is not the mediator in this covenant ceremony. The mediator of this covenant was promised in Genesis 3.15 and would become like the divided animals of Genesis 15 and be bruised for our iniquities and cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Isaiah 53. And in Genesis 17.7, God says to Abram, who has been called out and set apart and entered into covenant with God, God says unto him, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And so one of the last things I want to examine in Scripture is this resounding this echo throughout the whole of Scripture, and that is, I will be your God. The covenant of grace is summed up in God's promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. This promise is echoed throughout redemptive history. God made this promise with Abraham when he ordained the covenant sign of circumcision, in Genesis 17. 
He made the same promise more than 400 years later to Abraham's descendants when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He made it again when he prescribed the blessing they would inherit for their obedience to the Sinai covenant. And again, after centuries of disobedience to this covenant and connecting it to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The same promise is also found in the New Testament as it is applied to believers, both Jew and Gentile, when it says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And again we hear this promise in the closing chapters of Scripture when it says in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God promises in the one covenant of grace. God's promises in this one covenant of grace runs throughout redemptive history. It is not two plans of redemption for two different people groups, as I saw in dispensationalism, but rather it is this one covenant that spans the entirety of Scripture and the redemption of a people chosen by God, who promises unto them through the mediator Jesus Christ, I will be your God and you shall be my people. The Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Westminster Confession of Faith and its larger, larger catechism all teach that the covenant of grace began in Genesis 3.15 and runs throughout redemptive history until the consummation of all things. It was administered differently under the Old Testament and the New Testament, but its substance is the same in every period. There is no difference between Old Testament believer and New Testament believer, and that was huge for me. Because this covenant of grace has only one mediator. And that mediator being Christ himself. And so very quickly I want to address some areas where we differ in the reformed world. Please don't stone me. (laughs) Children of the covenant. And just very, very briefly. The reformed confessions and catechisms also teach that the covenant of grace is made with believers and their children. And this is, as I know from personal experience, an area that has been discussed, debated. At times it felt like there were going to be fists that were thrown. But the understanding of children being part of this covenant. Until the consummation of all things, the covenant of grace, as one writer put it, contains both Jacob's and Esau's. That is to say, both those who believe God's covenant promise with true faith and those who reject it. And I believe that some of our Baptist brothers and sisters would agree that in regard to the covenant community of the visible church, we cannot know with absolute certainty who is elect and who is not. It is impossible for man in the visible administration of the church to have a pure covenant community. This is why Herman Bovink in his Reform Dogmatics says, The covenant of grace reminds us that election is about not only individual persons, but also organic wholes, including families and generations. 
Therefore, some who remain inwardly unbelieving will, for a time, in the earthly administration and dispensation of the covenant of grace, be part of the covenant people. The final judgment belongs to God alone. And in this life, the church must regard such with judgment of charity. That's all I'm going to say on it right now. Pastor Titu a couple weeks ago did a wonderful job of addressing some of the same questions and concerns that I had in a Sunday school class a couple weeks ago and how we disciple our children. We raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so I would encourage you, go listen to that. It's a wonderful thing from Pastor T2. So, closing. I want to share why this doctrine of the covenant became so important in my own life. And I hope it encourages you as well. Why does it matter that we properly understand this covenant of grace? And I've only really touched the surface on it, but why is it important? Because by properly understanding this covenant, we can answer the first question to the Heidelberg Catechism. It's there in your outline. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, And has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The covenant of grace is the true comfort in the life and death of a believer. When man is spiritually dead, completely miserable, trembling all over and fleeing from God, God graciously sets out to find him and to redeem him. As we read in the Belgic Confession, we believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. What could be of greater comfort than knowing that we are redeemed through grace alone? To declare that it is not what my hands have done that can save my guilty soul. Thy work alone, thy blood alone, thy power alone, thy grace alone. Therefore, this covenant of grace is the complete provision of everything necessary to bring the elect to eternal glory. This provision has been completely purchased and guaranteed by Christ. And this should be the greatest joy in the life of a believer. Because in understanding all of these three foundational covenants that we have covered, redemption, works, and grace, we find comfort and joy in knowing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So what should be the Christian's response to the covenant of grace? 
to quote from Richard Allain's book, Heaven Opened, keep hold of Christ. He is your peace. Do not appear before God except in the blood of the Lamb. Let Him carry your duties. And do not own that for a comfort which is not brought to you by His hand. Let Him be your way to the Father and your Father's way to you. Keep fresh upon your heart the memory of His death and satisfaction and let that be your life and your hope. Have you cast your anchor upon this rock? Do not loosen your hold. Hands upon the altar. You cannot live if you do not live there. And if you must die, say, I will die here. Take hold of Christ. He is our only comfort in life and in death. We are not our own, but belong both body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of this glorious covenant of grace. Let us pray. Our almighty God of covenant, we thank you that when man was spiritually dead, completely miserable, and fleeing from you, you set out to find him, to redeem him, And we rejoice in knowing this covenant of grace is rooted in the eternal counsel of your will in the covenant of redemption. We also thank you for the mediator of this covenant of grace who fully satisfies the requirements of the covenant of works. And we thank you that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and all to the praise of your glorious grace alone. And now I ask that you would bless the rest of your Lord's Day, bless the preaching of your word, strengthen our elders and our deacons as they prepare to equip your people. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, through the power of your Spirit. Amen.